SWS Growth Equity Strategy Update for Q2 2022. This is Mike Parker, Lead Portfolio Manager for SWS Growth Equity, our flagship long-only growth strategy benchmarked against the Russell 1000 Growth Index. I'll start off with the introduction before handing it over to Kurt Grove, who will walk through issuer-specific takeaways. Our written commentary includes a number of URLs with relevant reference material. Please refer to the PDF copy for access to these supporting data. For the second quarter of 2022, SWS growth equity returned negative 29.8% gross of fees, a greater pullback than the negative 20.9% total return of the Russell 1000 growth index during the quarter. Kurt will cover further granularities on performance. We offer our game plan to regain footing in this introductory commentary while providing deeper issuer-specific analysis later in our contributors and detractors section. To say the year-to-date period has been challenging for active return generation would be a gross understatement. Unlike prior downturns, the root cause of our current environment has been more a confluence of sequentially falling dominoes than a singular force, making severity and pain duration particularly challenging to predict. It's far too early to declare that we're nearing a dust-settling moment. Another visibility-impairing sandstorm could indeed be around the corner. But in our constant diagnosis of the fundamental inputs, we see evidence to support that the market's inherently anticipatory nature may already reflect a sizable amount of bad news on the horizon. As in every major dislocation in modern equity market history, the white flag gets waved long after market price recovery. However, it's incredibly important to study the leading indicators behind the eventual fundamental improvement. To assess how narrow of a needle it's been to thread for stock picking, we again need to dig beneath the results that aggregate to headline index outcomes. Our update last quarter outlined how a ballooning market cap disparity has translated into the market being propped up by a disproportionately small field of mega cap issuers. The second quarter of 2022 did little to alleviate this disparity. Russell's proxies show a 15 percentage point gap for the 12-month period ending June 2022, with the 2000 growth, i.e. the small cap growth index, posting negative 33.4%, and the 1000 growth, i.e. the large cap growth index, posting negative 18.8%. This trailing 12-month gap narrowed from its 29-point spread last quarter, at which time it surpassed the prior record small versus large spread disparity occurring in March of 1999. Slicing the smaller cap outcomes by quartiles shows the unrelenting and non-discerning bloodshed. Half of the issuers in the 2000 growth index, accounting for over 600 stocks prior to this last June reconstitution, are down 64% year-to-date on average with the bottom quartile down 77% year-to-date. Narrowing participation is not isolated to small cap, though. 
the bottom half of the large cap growth index issuers are off 45% year to date on average compared to the negative 28% of the overall Russell 1000 growth. With such a large quantity of issuers experiencing massive price erosion in such a short period of time, it's a clear signal that the baby's being discarded with the bathwater. It also signals that many surviving business models, i.e. ones also using the opportunity to strengthen their competitive advantage, are being commingled with business model failures in the fire sale. These are also the exact conditions that reward the patient yet discerning investor. The current environment is a reflection of what happens when the skids controlling capital flows become excessively greased. Echo chambers occur and faulty thesis foundations form. Will shareholders of a movie theater chain truly be rewarded by diversifying into gold mining? The answer here is far obvious than others, but we saw similar behavior in the irrational exuberance that fueled the 2000.com era fire and similar faulty premise formation in the financial crisis that home prices would never decline. The tendency in today's confluence of factors that weigh on the market is to conclude that no element has the ability to single-handedly derail the markets. However, the broad slate of macro risks today has presented a particularly challenging headwind for capital allocators across virtually every asset class. When the 10-year treasury market experiences its worst first half start to a calendar year since 1788, you know there are a few places to hide. Updating our underwriting of portfolio issuers, we see a lot of similarities to overlooked opportunities during the 0809 hysteria. Ones that would later turn into massive outperformance once rational minds eventually prevailed. We're also afforded somewhat apples to apples comparative business model studies, specifically via software issuers whose strengthening competitive advantages get lost in the shuffle. Salesforce.com is one 0809 example that's analogous to the setup of some of our current positions, Snowflake and Cloudflare. During the financial crisis, cloud computing was at its infancy and healthy debate existed on whether multi-tenant databases would gain meaningful traction in an enterprise software world dominated by on-premise behemoths of Oracle, SAP, and IBM. Salesforce was a pioneer here with its customer relationship management offering being the main product contributor behind the $1 billion in revenue and $172 million in free cash flow that the company generated in 2008. As the contagion of fear ignited and focus shifted to shoring up balance sheets of the entire global banking system, Salesforce quietly continued to take profitable market share in the CRM market. The company steadily expanded to adjacencies to include customer service, marketing, commerce, collaboration, and analytics, and fast-forwarding past numerous execution and acquisition milestones, and the company today generates $6.5 billion of free cash flow on $27.9 billion in revenue. We dive further into detail on Cloudflare later in our performance 
detractor analysis, but the case study is an important reminder of how wildly price can deviate from value in times of mass hysteria and confusion. There's one key distinction in the mechanics of the systemic remedy required for our current predicament versus the one required in 0809. The latter had to entice trillions of dollars of capital to rotate from its current source onto the equity side of bank balance sheets. Now, once this Herculean effort was complete, the capital would then largely sit dormant. Banks didn't want to lens, and the return prospects were dim given the razor-thin spread environment from low rates and further erosion from seasoning delinquencies. The capital uh, rotation required today is very different and far less about shoring up balance sheets in the entire financial services sector. It's more about revealing promising embedded cash flow prospects to a new set of investor eyeballs or to the blurry-eyed ones of those that survive. Very much akin to what Salesforce proved. From a timing perspective, it's also likely to occur after the overlevered and overextended participants have been flushed out. That exercise actually began over 18 months ago and the meme stock short squeezes and actually has continued along the way as retail investors capitulate and some marquee crossover hedge funds get in hot water. Index composition now forces that re-underwriting process with meta platforms having a larger weighting in Russell's value index than it contains on the growth side today. Many traditionally growth issuers can no longer be ignored by the value camp. Valuation proxies also make for compelling consideration given that meta now trades cheaper both on PE and EV to EBITDA than IBM and some consumer staple companies. Meta also joins value constituency alongside Alphabet and Salesforce.com at a time when median SaaS multiples approached levels last seen in 2015. We're also on very different footing with regard to the health of the consumer today than in prior, prior downturns, as evidenced by debt service ratios or 9.5% now versus the 13.2% peak of the fourth quarter of 2007 and excess savings levels to the tune of $2.4 trillion. Yes, inflation is a persistent challenge with which to contend, but even here we see early signs of improvement. The core CPI level improved in June despite the headline uptick and many major culprits behind the baskets that comprise CPI are showing signs of alleviation. Commodities are meaningfully off their year-to-date highs. Base metals are down between 25 and 56%. Nat gas is down 23%. And WTI and Brent are both down 15 and 17% respectively from the year-to-date high. And the grumblings of semiconductor softness actually started to surface back in Q1 of this year and continue into Q2 of 2022. Given that semiconductors have long been in the crosshairs of supply chain and pricing disruptions, 
alleviation here will go a long way towards reducing supply fulfillment frictions across many sectors. The spigot of new equity issuances has also all but closed, significantly curtailing the sewage overflow that was rampant all last year. Data here also reveal that we're comping a financial crisis figure. First half of 2022 saw just $4.9 billion in IPOs, its lowest level since the first half of 2009. Meanwhile, total SPAC cancellations have shuttered $30 billion worth of capital raises across 30 deals year to date. And the number of SPACs making it to IPO in the second quarter of this year are down 95% from the high watermark back in Q1 of 2021. With the public on-ramp for late-stage venture meaningfully narrowing, many VCs have issued how-to-survive manuals to their portfolio companies, for example, Y Combinator and Sequoia. Meaningful down rounds are likely to come in later-stage deals. In fact, one in particular we've seen to be rumored at raising at a $6.5 billion valuation after completing a June 2021 raise at a $45.6 billion valuation. In our constant effort to underwrite our portfolio positions and their surrounding opportunity sets, we see some of the most compelling setups for upside capture relative to downside risk in our careers. In many cases, the catalysts that will act as reminders to the cash flow profile of entire swaths of businesses are more idiosyncratic and finite than prior fire sale periods. It's also unlikely to require a multi-year period of waiting for balance sheets to heal with today's consumer in an entirely different realm of credit health. With many bad actors flushed out or soon to be, we're starting to see issuers who've maintained or strengthened their competitive advantages get rewarded just in the current month. Persistent volatility to be expected in the short run. Over the long term, we're increasingly confident that price will again better reflect the economic value creation of our chosen portfolio constituents. These are the exact conditions that create highly compelling absolute and relative return opportunities. Our second part will be read by myself, Kurt Grove, our, a portfolio manager on our growth equity portfolio. Part two, alpha delivery, our reason for existence. The second quarter of 2022 delivered significant downside volatility in the U.S. equity markets, leaving no index unscathed, with the broad market proxy of the S&P 500 falling by 16.1% in the quarter. While no part of the equity market was able to dodge the drawdown, relative dispersion was once again significant. Similar to the first quarter of 2022, growth as a factor was a headwind, with the Russell 1000 and Russell 2000 growth indices returning negative 20.9% and negative 19.3%, versus the Russell 1000 and Russell 2000 value indices returning negative 12.2 and negative 15.3% respectively. In analyzing market return dispersion quarter to quarter, we traditionally have drawn in investor attention to the stylistic return differences between growth and value, or market capitalization return differences for small and large cap. This quarter, 
we highlight the flight to safety exhibited by the market in the second quarter, exemplified by the Russell 1000 low volatility ETF falling only 10.3% and the S&P 500 dividend ETF falling only 8.2% versus the S&P 500 high beta index falling 22.7%. This relative backdrop was a major headwind to our performance this quarter as we have been selectively concentrating our portfolio into higher conviction securities where fundamentals have been improving, but the share price has not been reflected in these changes. These changes have skewed our market cap lower, raised our exposure to higher growth, and increased our day-to-day unrealized volatility. We think this conscious, active decision is the correct one for investors who can ignore the daily noise and have a time frame longer than the next CPI release. With that said, we have been early to this pivot and are accountable to the quarterly market scoreboard that reports the results on the field. SWS growth equity returned negative 29.8% versus of fees for the quarter relative to the Russell 1000 growth at, 20 point, at negative 20.9% and the S&P 500 at negative 16.1%. Please see charts one and two to see SWS growth equity performance on a mountain graph since inception. Part three, contributors and detractors. Our first contributor was Vertex Pharmaceuticals. We will be brief in our recap with Vertex as its updates are minimal from 1Q 2022 after it finds itself on a list of contributors for the second quarter in a row, posting a positive 8% quarterly return and besting its biotech slash pharma peers at negative 4.5%. We encourage our investors to look back at our previous writings on Vertex from 2Q 2021, 4Q 2020, and 3Q 2020 where Vertex had been a top detractor in three out of four quarters. We think, this, we think it serves as a helpful reminder that stock performance doesn't move in a straight line. This is especially helpful in times of disappointing portfolio performance. Vertex serves as a good example of our previous success in parsing through the noise of daily pricing to see a positive inflection. Investors with a reasonable time frame and a discerning mind who are able to sift through fundamental updates while divorcing themselves from the daily marks of the market will be able to use stock market volatility to their respective advantage. Listening to CEO Reshma Kabalarmi at the Goldman Sachs Healthcare Conference this June, it is clear that confidence inside Vertex is high and rising about its ability to expand away from its single product offering of a functional cure for cystic fibrosis. Vertex efforts in sickle cell disease, beta thalassemia, APOL1 mediated kidney disease, type 1 diabetes, and its pain treatment option continue to exhibit positive data points. The market sell-off has been particularly hard on biotech companies, with the S&P Biotech Index falling greater than 65% off its all-time high. We expect Veritex to be opportunistic, with its $8 billion cash position and greater than $3 billion annual free cash flow, accelerating the internal drug development and via external M&A. These opportunities appear plentiful, and we are encouraged to see Veritex already purchasing Biosite to accelerate its type 1 diabetes development after preliminary data redoubts. Contributor number two, Constellation Brands. Constellation makes its debut on our list of contributors and detractors despite being a position held since our strategy inception in May 2018. Constellation was able to take advantage of the aforementioned flight to safety, returning a positive 1.3% for the second quarter, mildly outperforming its food and beverage peers at negative 0.4%. Constellation continues to execute in its core segment of beer. Industry-leading brands with Modella, and Corona Extra occupy the top and fourth spot, respectively, for share gainers, steadily garnering five points of share over the last five years. A renewed focus on the high end within its wine and spirits division has bolstered results, outpacing industry sales growth. The direct-to-consumer trend has not overlooked the alcohol and spirits market, with online sales poised to surpass $2 billion this year 
and Constellation has leaned into this strategy, outperforming the market by 3.5% in the first quarter. After two years of a pandemic that hindered on-premise alcohol sales, a canceled factory in Mexicali, and a mistime investment in Canopy, we believe the time is ripe for a focused Constellation to continue to outperform its peers and build upon its, its approximate $2 billion in annual free cash flow. Continued share gains in leading brands Modelo, Pacifico, and Corona, along with demographic tailwinds of Latin American population growth, and a new manufacturing plant in Veracruz should allow Constellation to grow free cash flow significantly above its food and beverage peers. Contributor number three, United Health Group. Health Group. Similar to Fairtex above, we will be brief on updates for UNH, which appears for a second straight quarter on our list of contributors, returning a positive 1%, outpacing its peers in its healthcare provider space that fell 12%. United Health Group benefited similar to Constellation from its lower beta factor and from its lack of exposure to the rapidly depreciating euro, easily outpacing its peers. We, re we reiterate the criticality of risk management when trafficking in U.S. equities. UNH serves as its purpose by providing a ballast to the healthcare portion of the portfolio, allowing for incremental risk to be taken in a higher octane subsectors like liquid bio with our positions in Natero and Garden. UNH is still deserving of fundamental ownership with its key role in providing price discovery in the convoluted U.S. healthcare market and the persistent tailwinds with the demographic setup of the aging of the baby boomers. We see all this summing to a consistent mid-teens EPS grower alongside a higher ROIC, allowing for a barbell approach to our risk posture within healthcare. Detractor number one, Cloudflare. Cloudflare significantly underperformed this quarter, returning a negative 63.5% relative to its software peers at negative 20.9%. Any allocation to software brings with it risk posture that's generally opposite to positions like Constellation and United Health, where the market has recently been rewarding defensive low volatility and low growth names. While we tend to view the spending on software to be very sticky and defensive, the individual stocks do not trade that way on a daily basis. Combining investors' reluctance towards high volatility securities and anything high growth, plus a CPI print that touched 9% for the first time in 41 years, made for insurmountable headwinds in software. Investors' focus quickly sharpened on longer duration securities, where much of the NPV is derived from terminal value, now being discounted by a significantly higher whack due to inflation. We think investors have been less than discerning in this process, choosing to flee the space overall versus making decisions on an individual issuer basis. Cloudflare, which has traditionally carried a growth and valuation premium to its software peers, was disproportionately punished as a result. Cloudflare's valuation has come down significantly, from greater than 100 times in November 2021 to, 17, or to approximately 17 times forward gross profit today. We utilize price to gross profit as a shorthand valuation proxy for illustration simplicity, but we underwrite every security by discounting cash flows and believe Cloudflare should, could show gap profitability very quickly if forced. While painful in the short term, not having an easy to defend next 12 month gap earnings multiple, we think it will soon become obvious to the market that Cloudflare is a clear winner within software. Presently, the market prefers to overanalyze every Fed speaker's verbiage to better anticipate if the FOMC will hike 75 basis points or maybe 100 basis points in July versus making any sort of effort to delineate between software investments. And before getting to any fundamental analysis of Nets prospects. Here, the important exercise entails underwriting Cloudflare's revenue contributions from its workers product in 2025 and beyond and studying how incremental margins flow through the financial statements. Investors don't have to make this overly complicated. 
Other software companies from years past provide a useful guide. Caveats indeed apply based on TAM, interest rates, technology, obsolescence, and general execution, but a helpful framework exists to dissect Cloudflare setup. Take ServiceNow in 2014 as one such case study, one that, spoiler alert, would go on to deliver a 600% return or a 29.6% CAGR through June 2022. ServiceNow had just produced $684 million in 2014 revenue, a figure that had to increase 60% year over year, on the way to achieving $1 billion in revenue in 2015, 47% growth. This put sales per employee, a key efficiency metric, at 247000 per employee in 2014, while the stock was being valued at 14.5 times price to, growth, price to gross profit. Putting this in context to the present-day Cloudflare, where we think the network as a service, workers, and being the fourth cloud provider will eclipse the addressable market of ITSM, ServiceNow's core market. Cloudflare produced $656 million in revenue in 2021, growing 52% year-over-year, and is projected to hit approximately a billion dollars this year at a 46% growth rate. On a per-employee basis, Cloudflare surpassed greater than 300000 per employee last year for revenue, while the stock trades at 17.5 times price to gross profit. All metrics compare favorably or very similarly to ServiceNow circa 2014. Cloudflare continues to take share from on-premise networking providers like Cisco with its networking as a service core offering and builds upon its competitive advantage by constant testing on its greater than 4 million free customers. These free customers serve as a cheap marketing channel, and most importantly, a global threat intelligence network and R&D test ground. All this allows Cloudflare to focus on iterating rapidly with new products. Recently, Cloudflare turned its focus on the rapidly growing zero trust networking space, surpassing Zscaler's capability despite an 11 year head start for Zscaler. We expect a much longer than 35% growth runway relative to consensus estimates. The long-term wildcard and opportunity for Cloudflare is Cloudflare workers. At greater than 350,000 developers building upon workers, it's only a matter of time before the first billion dollar company is built on this new edge development platform. Originally used by developers tinkering on non-core products, we see evidence that workers is gaining Main Street adoption and CTO mindshare with the announcement that a quote, major social media platform built a two-factor authentication application via Cloudflare workers. Detractor number two, Block Inc, formerly known as Square. Block appears once again on a list of detractors after last appearing in 4Q 2021 and four times prior as a top contributor. Returning negative 54.7% relative to its financial services peers, returning negative 19.7% for the quarter. Evidenced by its seventh appearance on the list since May 2018, Block suffers from some of the same factor headwinds as Cloudflare above with its high beta, high growth, and high volatility factor exposures. Additionally, Block was negatively affected by its association with Bitcoin and the greater than 70% decline the cryptocurrency endured since its November high. We view the Bitcoin association as overblown, site being 43% of revenue due to a forced SEC revenue classification disclosure change in 2019. It is only 3% of gross profit and should be viewed as a customer acquisition channel versus a true EBIT profit driver. One of the key underlying tenets of our investing philosophy is evaluating companies on their current competitive advantage, how, how this has changed, what it will be in the future, and ultimately how this will reflect itself in the financial statements. A hallmark of a strong company is the ability to iterate and innovate constantly, fail fast, and lean heavily into positive ROI projects. 
We think it's a helpful exercise to look at block historically to highlight the innov this innovativeness and how it will be potentially be reflected in the future. Originally starting as a taxi cab credit card reader, Block pivoted into the Square Reader for restaurants, and more recently for retail stores and their respective omni-channel strategies. This area served as the core product since 2010, and despite weathering a pandemic that severely hampered its on-premise restaurant customers. Block was able to grow the segment's gross profit at a 21% CAGR from $1 billion in 2018 to $2.3 billion last year. Concurrently, Block invested in a little side project called Cash Op. Cash App focused on enabling peer-to-peer -peer transactions and was not the incumbent in the space. In fact, in 2015, the space had already been declared one, and Venmo was the clear leader across the U.S. Note, please click on the link here to show the graphic highlighting Venmo's dominance. Cash App, with a quicker innovation cycle allowing for more product features, a strategy to target previously unaddressed demographic, and a superior marketing message, was able to catch up to Venmo. Fast forward to today, Cash App is the clear leader, generating greater than $2 billion in gross profit and poised to become Block's largest gross profit, profit segment in 2022. We highlight this example just to show how present market conditions may be at odds with the company's long-term best interests. If Block had not invested in Cash App, it would be a fraction of its current market capitalization. Market receptiveness to investment by companies tends to oscillate with the market cycle. Currently, the market pendulum has swung very far in favor of companies that have demonstrated the ability to generate cash flow in the past or can in the next year, while shunning those who are investing. This, present, this presents an opportunity for investors who can evaluate companies in a growth mode that are not in favor but are well on their way to opening up new markets and capturing profitable market share. We think the long-term vision of Block is just starting to be realized. Recent investments in retail, restaurants, omni-channel, combined with a large lead in personal banking with Cash App, set Square up to be the first real threat to the traditional payment processors, potentially building a two-sided marketplace, circumventing the current system dominated by Visa and MasterCard. Detractor number three, Shopify. Shopify appears on our list of detractors for a second quarter in a row, and like Block, underperforming its financial services peers with a negative 53.3% return versus 19.7% for the group. Shopify suffers from some of the same factor exposures as Block and Cloudflare, and as such, was concurrently punished worse than the market. For Block and Cloudflare, we focused on the long term, as there have been little to no major fundamental impairments. Shopify is facing a couple of self-inflicted fundamental headwinds that are causing investors to evaluate Shopify's relative competitive advantages. First, as mentioned last quarter, is the dual headwinds all e-commerce companies currently face tough yearly comparable numbers from a pull forward in consumer demand aided by stimulus checks and IDFA changes that continue to hamper DTC companies. We think of these issues as temporal and in the case of IDFA may present a logical business expansion for Shopify. The new incremental headwind facing Shopify is the launch of quote, buy with prime by Amazon. Buy with prime allows third party retailers to add a button to their respective website to offer free delivery via prime. This is a major strategy shift by Amazon, allowing transactions to take place outside the Amazon walled garden of Amazon.com and effectively allowing retailers to outsource logistics to Amazon, all while retaining branding power. This move blurs the line between Shopify and Amazon in terms of value proposition. Shopify offers the best payment option with, with ShopPay and is the de facto choice for all back office website e-commerce decisions for aspiring retailers. 
Shopify is also moving quickly into offering third-party logistics with SFN and its recent acquisition of Deliver. We don't, think this, we don't think this value proposition has eroded, but do believe Shopify needs to invest heavily into being an alternative to Amazon for third-party logistics. Incrementally, we think the IDFA changes have, been, have shown a need for a revamped advertising ecosystem for small and mid-sized companies. Targeting customers has become much harder for small companies. They can no longer outsource the job to Facebook due to first-party versus third-party data constraints. Similar to logistics, back office work, and website development, it makes sense that advertising capabilities would be better built by a larger platform than each individual small DTC company. Recently launched Shopify Audience fits this market needs perfectly, and it represents a logical next step as Shopify looks to expand its significantly under-monetized 2.6% take rate. Section 4, Portfolio Changes. New Positions, MP. We added to positions in Restoration Hardware, Snowflake, New Relic, and Garden Health. We reduced positions in American Homes, Visteon, and Meta. We exited positions in Edwards Life Sciences and Stitch Fix. Our first new position is MP Materials, ticker MP. MP represents our first mining-specific issuer purchase inside of growth equity. Purchased out of, bank, out of bankruptcy by hedge fund manager James Litniski in 2017 and brought public via SPAC in June of 2020, MP required a longer thesis development ramp time in order to understand the issuer's prospects. MP classifies its business plan into three stages with the ultimate goal of bringing the end-to-end -end rare earth supply chain back to the U.S. MP's three stages. Number one, mining REO, rare earth oxide concentrate. Step two, refining REO into NDPR. Number three, magnet production. Stage one is finished and at run rate production. Stage two will be completed by the year in 2022, and stage three is finishing in 2023 to 2025, with alloy production in 2023 and magnets 12 to 24 months later. MP specifically mines REO at its Mountain Pass mine in California. This is the only rare earth mine in the Western Hemisphere, where greater than 90% of the other supply comes exclusively from China. Rare earth metals are vital materials for magnets, that are increasingly selling into a number of end markets, consumer electronics, HVAC systems, and military applications. More importantly, they are becoming important materials in new applications with permanent magnet motors for electric vehicles and wind turbines because of the increased power density, i.e. torque, at a lower weight. Electric, electric vehicles utilize two to four kilograms, approximately four to 10 pounds of magnets more relative to internal combustion engines. We view this as a good way to play the upcoming EV adoption, and in our view, significant price inflation that will occur in certain commodities. Just 5% of the 2020 worldwide supply of NDPR, which is a key input for magnets, was consumed by EVs. By 2025, assuming only 10% of new car sales are EVs, 22% of the worldwide supply would be consumed by EVs. Moving 50% of new car sales to EVs, consumes greater than 100% of currently available worldwide supply, ignoring that 95% other in products that currently utilize NDPR. While the background of the story has harder to digest elements, with the previous owner, Molly Corp, going bankrupt, MP is a SPAC issuer with non-miners running the C-suite. After spending some time with management, we see their clean sheet of paper thinking and risk-adjusted ROIC focus as sources of competitive strength. Is, 
it also is a main driver to solving prior issues of the predecessor owner operator. Evidence of this is unfolding. One, MIMP has already produced three times the value of the volume of REO over what the previous owner ever produced. Two, MP has already successfully despacked, in our opinion, as its day-to-day -day trading doesn't resemble other SPACs. And number three, it's extremely impressive 80% plus EBITDA margins and greater than 50% free cash flow margins show a real sustainable business. Position exit, stitch fix. Since not every position exit represents a capitulation in investment thesis, more often it's a matter of finding better risk reward elsewhere. We typically don't expound upon exits. Stitch fix represents a capitulation that merits a more thorough explanation though. Prior write-ups include our position initiation in August of 2020 in four separate appearances in contributors detractors in 4Q 2020, 1Q 2021, 3Q 2021, and 4Q 2021. Without sugarcoating the conclusion, we got both the stock price and fundamental calls wrong, leading us to capitulate 100% on our stitch fix position following the company's April 2022 update. We initiated our stitch fix position in August of 2020 at $24 a share and made sub subsequent sells to book gains twice in January 2021. Our first tranche at $82 a share and our second at $105 a share. These sales allowed us to take chips off the table at approximately 1.4 times our initial capital outlay while leaving the remaining capital as an overweight position. We make these types of moves as inherent risk management practice in growth equity, knowing that the stitch fix tailwind that drove this stock quickly greater than $100 a share. Stitch fix spent a total of $5 above $100 a share, only one closing day above $100 a share on January 27th, the date of our second sell was largely due to the exogenous factors of mean stock short squeezes in AMC, GameStop, etc. We picked our spots on subsequent pullbacks for redeployment, specifically executing buys in the $57 a share to $25 a share range from March to December 2021. So why are we selling now? Going concern has now become an actual issue for Stitch Fix. We don't assign high odds for bankruptcy, but it's undoubtedly higher now than any point prior of our ownership. Meanwhile, the market has gotten more reflexive. It is no longer given, gives any latitude to misexecution, nor does it retain any patience for companies requiring time to invest in the future without massively punishing equity prices in the interim. Unfortunately for Stitch Fix, the necessary remedy faces little to no appetite by the public markets to be reflected by the stock's pricing over the intermediate future. Stitch Fix should be stepping on the gas right now, ramping spending to expand into different geos across Europe expanding product offerings to other categories of retail, increasing investment in logistics, and further expanding its freestyle offering, i.e. direct buy. This is the exact opposite of what the company is doing, as it is forced to be more defensive, evidenced by a 15% workforce layoff. This is the right move to preserve cash in the face of a likely apparel recession while managing a limited balance sheet, but is very much a trade-off between survival and growth. This decision could have been avoided entirely had the company either invested for growth years earlier we're taking advantage of a more attractive funding environments of 2021 by issuing equity. With all that said, we continue to see attractive prospects for further online penetration within apparel, and a personalized approach to online shopping will serve a purpose. Stitch Fix also maintains a strong data advantage and exists as an enticing demand gen generation platform for many brands. However, we see the company's transition to a direct buy offering taking longer and requiring more execution risk than the market is currently willing to bear. 
with many other issuers trading at bargain basement prices, many of which don't entail the same growth versus survival trade-off as Stitch Fix, we decided that our capital is better deployed elsewhere within the portfolio.